chapter 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 is one of the best known verses in the Bible, and yet it is often misunderstood and frequently neglected in practice. In the West, for example, many claim that evil spirits do not exist. Large numbers of Western Christians don't believe that there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. People wonder, or some do at least, if we really should believe in demons, let let alone know how we should respond to them. But even in my country, Australia, there has been a significant increase in interest and involvement with the dark side of life. Horror films, science fiction, and particularly the use of the internet. In the Christian life, the evil spiritual dimension is often ignored. Moral failure among believers is interpreted simply in terms of giving in to the pressures of our society. Ineffective evangelism is put down to um, lack of training or persuasive skills rather than to the powerful hindrance by the God of this world, the devil and his evil forces. We know that there are some segments of Christianity who do take seriously the existence of the demonic. They do attempt to confront the spiritual dimension. But often their excesses are so well known that they are regarded as being on the fringe of society. Demons are seen behind almost every problem. And the rest of Christianity writes the whole thing off because it is extreme. But this rejection does not come to grips with the Bible's teaching on the evil spiritual dimension. In fact, the lack of interest may be more due to the enlightenment than being driven by biblical teaching. We need to gain a proper perspective from the scriptures about spiritual warfare. If we are not aware of the subtle and powerful work of our enemy, the devil, he will defeat us. Perhaps there are already areas of our lives in which we have not been aware of his awful work. And as a result, we are seriously weakened as Christians. What does Ephesians 6, 10-20 tell us about this spiritual battle? And how should we respond in a way that pleases God? Let's set Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10-20 to within its context. This final passage of Ephesians has been taken by some as a kind of irrelevant appendix, tacked onto Ephesians as a kind of parenthesis of secondary importance. Instead, it is a crucial element to which the rest of the letter has been pointing. It is the climax not just of the last three chapters, 4, 5 and 6, with their exhortation. It, in fact, concludes the whole letter. Paul looks at the Christian's responsibility of living in in the world from a broader cosmic perspective. The immoral issues he has addressed throughout Ephesians are not simply matters of personal preference over against postmodernism. Postmodernists might want to tell us this, that they are. It simply depends on your standpoint. 
But on the contrary, the word of God stands against our contemporary viewpoints by telling us that these moral issues are essential elements in a larger struggle between the forces of evil and of good. Paul, in fact, uses the term evil, an ethical judgment which many postmodernists don't like. Interestingly, the themes mentioned earlier in the letter are picked up and addressed in this cosmic and supernatural context. God's power, principalities and powers, the pieces of armour, righteousness and so on. You could track them down quite easily. These are major themes which have appeared earlier on in Ephesians and now are brought together. If Paul has already written to the Christians at Ephesus and to other places that received this circular letter about living in the world, now in chapter 6 he describes this life in relation to cosmic, supernatural and demonic categories. He ties our existence to a wider dimension and we neglect this dimension at our peril. If we leave this aspect of reality out of our thinking, then we won't see our world in the way that God views it. We will find that there are things that trip us up which we can't explain if we don't take this reality into account. This part of God's word tells us that the Christian life as a whole is a spiritual struggle. Every Christian, without exception, is involved in it. In the immediately earlier part, in chapters 5 and the earlier part of uh, chapter 6, Paul has written what has been described as instructions for Christian households. There were particular words addressed to wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, but not anymore. This paragraph about the spiritual warfare is addressed to every believer in the church at Ephesus and in all those other congregations. This, by the way, does not mean Paul is saying that everyone is demon-possessed. That is a different issue. Some may want to raise that at uh, lunch or whenever. So up to this point, Paul has been preparing us for this teaching about being strong in the Lord and putting on his armour. And so we turn to... um, to uh, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, but perhaps as we do we ought to be reminded of a number of prior things. Christ has won, according to Ephesians, the decisive battle at the cross over the powers of darkness. In fact, the cross and resurrection. He has triumphed over them. But for the moment, his rule remains hidden from view. We can't physically see that victory of the Lord Jesus, but it is real nevertheless. The devil's time is short and his final overthrow has been fixed by God, according to the book of the Revelation. Satan and his forces continue to exist. They make war on Christians and so the spiritual warfare continues. In fact, the Bible tells us that the devil goes around as a roaring lion trying to devour men and women. He tries to cause as much havoc as he can, stopping men and women from receiving the gospel of the Lord Jesus into their own lives. He seeks to snatch away the word of God when it is preached. He will be very active after we go out this morning. 
We will be tempted to talk about everything. The devil is a master at getting us off the topics that really count. I think of the number of times back in my home church where we will talk about the weather, the politics. We have an organ recital sometimes when we talk about people's illnesses. We'll talk about anything and everything except the issues of the sermon or matters that concern our growth as Christians. The devil is a past master at working very hard after church every Sunday morning. He wants to distract men and women in countless ways so they won't come to repentance and faith. And he tries to trip us as Christians up morally. What is the nature of this struggle here in Ephesians chapter 6? Paul paints a vivid picture in verse 12 to speak of this spiritual warfare. In the ancient Greek games of the first century, like those at Olympia, those in Ephesus and other cities, the most important event was not the marathon, nor indeed the 100 metre dash, as often it's viewed in our Olympic games. The most important event was the struggle, the palaire in wrestling. That was the blue ribbon event. Paul tells us, however, that in contrast to the flesh and blood who run those races, or rather are engaged in this wrestling, I should say, the wrestling that the Ephesians would have known about from their games, for Paul, however, the real struggle, the real wrestling event, was a spiritual power encounter that needed spiritual weapons. Why does he call it a struggle? Why does he use the term of wrestling, term that's used in other fields as well? Perhaps to emphasise the fact that the battle with the powers of evil was a close-fought one. It is hand-to-hand combat, not the firing of computer-guided missiles from a distance. When we face serious difficulties in sharing the gospel or find our plans for the life of our congregation being wrecked or thwarted, we often lay the blame at the feet of others. There are people, there are individuals, there are members of parish councils and committees that get in the road, this sort of thing. We're inclined to be angry with them, basically because we believe we are up against flesh and blood. We focus on that. But that's only part of the story. This part of God's word tells us that we may well have misread what is going on if our focus of attention is upon them. We haven't understood the nature of the warfare in which we're involved. Our opponents are supernatural spiritual forces that are evil. Paul can describe them by the word darkness here in this passage. If then we are engaged in a spiritual warfare that is deadly serious, that is constant, and in which there's no let up, then what am I, what are you expected to do? What are we corporately expected to do? Paul responds in this passage by telling us to engage in a battle knowing two things. What our goal or objective is, And what are the strategic resources that God has given us, the weapons that he has provided us in order to achieve these goals? First, our strategic objective. 
As we engage in this momentous struggle, we need to be clear about our chief goal. Put simply, it is to stand. The strength that God promises to supply is for a particular purpose, that we might be able to stand against the evil powers and successfully to resist them. Look at your Bibles and see the number of times this word is used. Stand or withstand, standing firm. Verse 11. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13. Therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. And then again in verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. In various translations, the Apostle gets across he wants Christians to stand, to stand firm, or to withstand. All various forms of the one verb in the original. And the imperative to stand in verse 14 is the chief exhortation of this passage. Stand firm then. God has given us his armour and power in, in order to fulfil this goal. Now, I would suggest to you from this particular passage that standing involves two basic responses, one negative and one positive. The first is to resist temptation. This means holding on to one's position against the devil's schemes or what are called his insidious wiles. In other words, not surrendering to his evil opposition, his temptations, which come in variegated and multiform uh, fashion. Not surrendering, but prevailing against his wiles. The fact that they are spoken of in this way, and in the plural, indicates they are constantly repeated. He knows the weaknesses and will chase us up again and again and again on the same thing. Or they may be amazingly varied. Get over one temptation and get faced with another entirely different. He launches different kinds of attacks. The evil one and his lieutenants are able to mount against us uh, flaming arrows which he launches against the Lord's people. We'll talk about them in a moment. The various expressions that the Apostle Paul uses here show that they're not only inner temptations to evil, but also external pressures brought to bear against us. In other words, as one translation puts it, every kind of attack and assault of the evil one. Do you remember the ferocious animals with their weapons in the Battle of Narnia? The recent film brought that out. In fact, according to Ephesians 4.27, Satan tries to get a foothold and exercise influence over the lives of Christians. He uses uncontrolled anger, as well as falsehood, stealing, unwholesome talk, which are mentioned in chapter 4. Interestingly, although Satan is not, to be said, is not said to be the one producing the anger, the source is apparently within the believer himself or herself, maybe it's the flesh, for we're up against the world, the flesh and the devil, these can give the devil, devil an occasion to cause strife within the life of the individual and the community if that anger is not dealt with. 
But the Apostle's intention is that believers, you and I, by putting on the armour of God, might be able to prevail or withstand the evil tactics of this powerful enemy. Paul wants to see us as Christians strong, stable and robust so that we remain firm against the devil's wiles. But if there is a negative dimension to standing, there's also a positive one. Standing firm, which is our main objective, involves something more than the defensive. We are to take the initiative and move on to the offensive. Paul calls the soldiers of Christ to advance on enemy territory by fearlessly declaring the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Just as Christ bound the strong man in order to plunder his house, so we too are to plunder the kingdom of Satan by announcing the gospel, the message of divine rescue to captives in the kingdom of darkness. A lot of people have said that Ephesians six ten to 20 talks about passive resistance. It says things about passive resistance, but that doesn't let us off the hook as far as sharing the gospel with others, of taking the initiative, indeed using the sword of the Spirit, to which Andrew referred earlier, is similar to that. So, standing firm means holding one's ground in a defensive position. There are times when Christians need to dig in. In the Anglican Church at the present time, Peter Jensen and a number of archbishops who've been getting it in the neck in various parts of the world need to dig in and stand firm. They're in the process of taking the initiative in other areas, but they need to stand. And the way the press, the Sydney Morning Herald and other things in Australia carry on, you'd have thought that Peter Jensen and the others were the ones who'd shifted their ground. It's the others who've moved, not them. So there are times when people need to stand firm and not give up. And the pressure over issues of homosexuality and so on in some of the other denominations in our city, Christians are vilified, regarded as um, all sorts of things. And uh, they need to be encouraged to stand firm. Shifting off one's ground in that context is not godly at all. It's to move away from the hope of the gospel. So, what has been given to us to help us in this situation? Ephesians chapter 6 speaks of our strategic resources. Friends, the idea of doing battle with Satan and the powers of darkness may may seem a frightening prospect. Indeed, to to take on such formidable foes simply with our own resources would be to court court disaster. We as Christians would be fatally unprotected and and, uh, exposed. But Ephesians 6 does not foster an attitude of fear. It is a paragraph full of confidence and hope. The reader of this passage of God's word The first listener who heard it when it was read out in the congregations is left not with a feeling of despair, but with the sense that Satan can be defeated. The strategic resources might be summarised in various ways. I don't propose to go through each of the pieces of armour, 
But I think one could say we need to know what God has done for us in Christ. The fundamental reason for our confidence, but not our presumption, is that the decisive victory over the powers has already been won for us by God in the Lord Jesus through his death and resurrection, as I said earlier. Not only has the authority of the powers been broken, but also their final defeat is imminent. The powers cannot ultimately hinder the progress of the gospel. God's word that goes forth accomplishes the purposes for which he has sent it. And that is as true today as it was back in Isaiah's day. The the powers cannot hinder the progress of the divine word. And everything, everything will finally be subject to Christ. All things will be placed under Christ's feet. In fact, it is because of God's victory in his son that we're in the battle at all. We are urged not to win the victory, but rather to withstand the devil's insidious wiles and to hold firm the stances we've seen that will be both defensive and positive. But there is a further dimension to bear in mind to what God has done for us in Christ. We recognise not only what has happened in the cross and resurrection, God has also provided for us his mighty armour. We are urged to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And to do this, we put on the whole armour of God. Otherwise, as I've said, there is no chance of success if we struggle on our own. But what is the armour of God? Back in Isaiah 59, the first reading that we had uh, this morning, first Bible reading, we see that the Lord of hosts is described as a warrior who goes out and fights with his own army, um, armour I should say, as he goes into battle against his enemies in order to vindicate his own people. Isaiah 59 verses 15 to 17 speak of this. Earlier on in the book of Isaiah, the armour that God has is the armour which the Messiah himself wears. In Isaiah chapter 11. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So so the armour of God is God's own armour, the armour used by his Messiah, as, and here we're using picturesque language, God goes out and fights against his enemies. So he provides his own weapons that he, he has used himself. He now gives to us his people as we engage in the spiritual battle. So what does it mean to put on the armour of God? Put simply, to put on the armour of God is to put on God himself. Or, in another way, it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's language which we find difficult to understand. But when you and I believe the gospel, assuming of course that we have, then at that point of time we were united with the Lord Jesus and we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we have been converted, we've put on the Lord Jesus, we've been united with him in his death and resurrection. 
So as we face the spiritual battle each day, we turn to God in Christ and seek his strength. We know that he gives us everything that we need to live godly lives, to face temptation and to tell out the gospel to men and women who are in bondage. In practical terms, when I put on the breastplate of righteousness, when I put on the robe of righteousness, that that time at the age of 19, my standing before God was as one who had been forgiven of all guilt. And so, when I put on the breastplate of righteousness in this spiritual warfare, I am reminded again that I am forgiven. No charge can be levelled against me. The Christian cannot be blackmailed. Some years ago when I was working in India, there was a young man from uh, the city of Madras, Chennai as it's now called, who came to our college to to uh, study. After he'd finished his course of uh, four years, he went back to the city of Chennai to be pastor in a church there, his own hometown. He was walking in Mount Road, Madras one day, and he met a young man whom he'd recognised many years earlier. The fellow was a Hindu, as Noel himself had been a Hindu. And as they began to uh, um, talk with one another and uh, share what they had been doing, the young Hindu man said to him, what are you doing? And he nearly fell over when he was told that Noel, his former uh, associate, as it were, was now pastor of a church only a short distance away. He said, what are you doing that? I can't believe it. And then he began to rehearse a litany of all the things he and Noel had got up to in their former lives, so to speak, the things that they used to do, ride their motorbikes up and down Mount Road, Madras, get into trouble with the police and a lot more besides. And Noel was becoming more and more embarrassed. And he said yes to his Hindu friend. Yes, I did do do all of those things and in fact a number of other things you don't even know about. But he said, what about you? If you now know that they are wrong, where do you stand in relationship to these? And he began to speak to him about the Lord Jesus. And his comment to me was, you know, the Christian cannot be blackmailed, even in an embarrassing situation like that. If I put on the breastplate of righteousness, I am reminded that I am forgiven of all guilt When I take up the helmet of salvation, I'm reminded that I'm saved by grace alone. Paul is telling us that we are secure in Christ. We have been forgiven and we have been saved through him. Do you know, when you go through patches when you're not sure about where you stand, you will back off from talking to others about the Lord Jesus. You won't want to share your faith because you're getting a little doubtful. But if in fact you put on the armour of God and are reminded of the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, then that brings with it confidence. And therefore we are able to share the gospel with others. The Christian needs to be outfitted with proper footwear in order to be ready for the battle. 
In other words, we're to be ready or willing to share the gospel of peace with others. Surprising, isn't it? Paradoxical. That we are, to prepare, we are prepared to announce a gospel of peace as we engage in a spiritual warfare. One particular weapon that Christians use is the sword of the Spirit, which is identified with the Word of God, the Gospel. The Spirit is the one who makes this sword powerful and effective, giving to it its cutting edge. That Word of God is the same Word that has freed us from bondage. It has delivered us from our dreadful predicament. You may remember in the Narnia story, about the mighty sword that was given to Peter for the battle he had. That powerful word of God has to be used. And as finally, let me say, or rather second last point I want to make, that an important weapon that we as believers are to take up is the shield of faith. The shield that the Apostle is talking about here is a Roman shield, but it's not the small round Roman shield that left most of the body unprotected. There was a large shield carried by Roman soldiers that covered the whole person. To take up the shield of faith means to lay hold of God's promises to to us, confident that he will protect us in the midst of the battle. You see, the large shield for the Roman soldier was used especially that was designed to quench the dangerous missiles, particularly arrows that had been dipped in tar, lit and fired. These flaming missiles often inflicted deadly wounds or caused havoc amongst the hardest of soldiers because they rained down upon them. And unless they had that shield of faith, unless those shields had been soaked with water and were able to quench them, they were in real strife. The fact that the evil one fires burning arrows at us draws our attention to the every kind of attack launched by the devil and his hosts. Not only temptation to ungodly behaviour, to doubt and despair, but as I said earlier, external assaults such as persecution or false teaching. Taking up that shield is very important. It means that I'm able to trust in God's ability to keep me in the battle at all times. Finally, Paul in verses 18 to 20 says that this whole battle has to be surrounded by prayer. It's not described as a piece of armour, it's almost the air we breathe as we're engaged in the battle. So we're to stand firm and we're to pray with every prayer and petition, with all perseverance and request. Prayer is the atmosphere that we are to breathe as we engage in this spiritual struggle, as we are up against the powers of darkness. Friends, everyone here today who is a Christian is involved in a spiritual warfare. I haven't preached a sermon on the world or the flesh, and if I were to do the job properly, I would deal with both of those as well. For earlier on in Ephesians, Paul has spoken about the fact that non-Christians are bound by a three-stranded cable. The world, the devil and the flesh. The Orthodox often talk about the world and the flesh. Other groups often talk about the devil. 
I focused on the spiritual warfare today because it is a dimension that is very real. And if we don't take it into account, whatever other good things we may be doing, there will be a dimension that we have neglected and therefore will not wholly see things in the eyes that God sees them. We will consider ourselves up against other difficult people who won't let us get our way even in Christian ministry and the like. We will have failed to read the nature of the to have read the nature of the campaign properly. It is a dimension we need to take on board because it is a dimension that God's word brings us to us. Not because we're fearful. The Lord Jesus is victorious. We don't win the battle, but that doesn't mean we're not engaged in the mopping up uh, mopping up operations. That's part and parcel of our Christian responsibility. Amen. Shall I pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection. We thank you that his death was not only to turn aside your wrath, to propitiate you so that we might be forgiven and cleansed, but also that his death was in order to triumph over the powers and Satan. We thank you for what your word tells us about Satan whose final destination is writ large. He is a doomed and defeated foe and we pray that as he goes about as a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour that we will know what it is with your resources to stand firm, to withstand, that is to resist and to take the initiative in proclaiming the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name.